You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge. Now, Outdoor Edge is a knife company. We all know that. They offer a complete line of fixed blade knives, replaceable blade knives, and game processing kits, right? So any blade you need to break down an animal, these guys have it. Now, the cool thing about their replaceable blades is let's say you are in the middle of breaking down an animal and the blade goes dull. The only thing you have to do is push a button. The blade pops out. You put a new blade in. It locks in tight and you're back to breaking down that animal. You get it cooled down. You get it back to the truck faster and you get more meat in the long run. So if you want to find out more information about all the blades, fixed, replaceable, and game processing kits that Outdoor Edge makes, visit their website outdooredge.com and if you want to save 30% on your purchase enter the discount code nation30 that's n-a-t-i-o-n 30 and that's outdooredge.com what's up guys my name is parker mcdonald and i'm your host and you are listening to the southern ground hunting podcast What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. This is a great episode. We have got a guest that is uh, not your typical Southern Ground guest. He is not from the South. You're going to be able to tell by his accent that he is a Northern guy. We got Johnny Stewart on the line today. And uh, I just got off the phone with him. We had this conversation, and man, it is so full of of great information. Um, Now, one of the reasons we typically stay away from uh, northern or midwestern guests is because a lot of the a lot of the hunting strategies and things that work in those type of areas don't necessarily work down here um, but Pennsylvania is kind of an exception to that rule in that a lot of it is just big woods monotonous high pressure public land now those three things sound very similar to a lot of the southeast and uh, we talk about hunting pressure and how Johnny really uses that as one of his main uh, tactics looking at any piece of property is how is how where's where the pressure at and how can I look around that pressure he talks about some pretty aggressive things that he does on these public land pieces and uh, I think even if you're a private land hunter um, a lot of the private lands that I've hunted hunting clubs leases things like that have actually had more pressure 
um, in predictable spots than a lot of the public land that I've hunted. And so a lot of these aggressive tactics can be used on private land. Um, I had an experience last year where I used some pretty aggressive tactics on private land that I got invited to hunt and ended up killing a buck. So um, if you are a private land guy, if you have a hunting club or a lease, don't throw out these these tactics. It's, uh, it's good stuff no matter where you're hunting. And sometimes it can be a little bit easier to predict where the pressure is going to be at on the private land. So this stuff could really uh, come in handy no matter where you're hunting. So before we get into that episode, though, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. But before we do that, we've got to get into thanking our partners of this podcast, the, the companies that really do make this possible. We'll start out with tetherednation.com. For all things saddle hunting, um, I've mentioned it in the episodes previous and uh, or prior. I don't know what the right word is. Prior, we'll say prior. Uh, I've talked about the teaching trains, but there are still teaching trains going on all across the country, teaching people about saddle hunting. Tethered has all their equipment at these teaching train events, where you can try them out, you can test them out. I know right now. Uh, this weekend, there's one coming up in Georgia, in North Georgia. My buddy Jonah a- Abraham is in charge of putting that thing on, and it's going to be a good time. So if you're in Georgia and you hear this episode, you hear this uh, this spot, this ad spot, try to find out where this teaching train is going to be at. I, I should have prepared a little bit better. I could tell you exactly where it's at, but um, I know it's in North Georgia. So go to tetherednation.com to learn more about that or if you're just interested in getting into saddle hunting and purchasing some high quality top-notch equipment tethered is the place to go and check that out also screegear.com for your hunting camo needs anything that you're looking for I've answered a lot of questions this week from guys in the south who are saying hey what all do i need i know a lot of this stuff is made for northern midwestern and western hunters uh, what does a guy from the south need uh, ScreeGear.com has several different packages, and the Whitetail package is uh, is definitely going to be what you need. Now, here in the South, we don't get super cold temperatures a lot, so you don't need absolutely everything. But it is important when you need it. Um, the Ptarmigan jacket, man. I every time I do this spot, I I want to say what my favorite piece of gear is, and every time I do it it's something different i mean it's all so good but the ptarmigan jacket will highlight that it's a uh, it's one of the the ultra down jackets super lightweight and stinking warm i was talking to a guy this week who was asking my opinion on it and i was like hey it's really good when you need it on those like sub freezing days it's really great when you need it uh but don't walk to the tree stand with it because uh you're gonna sweat and uh, man it's just like an incinerator it's awesome jacket and uh, so they have all kinds of stuff on the Scree Gear website. Go and check that out at ScreeGear.com. You can use the code SOUTHERNGROUND at checkout, and that will save you a little bit on your purchase. Uh, let's look at New Canoe. So, man, I, I've i talked about the, the new Unlimited Kayak a lot lately. I got it, and I've been using it. It's a great boat. Um, man, but, like, honestly, all the stuff that I've had from New Canoe is awesome. I've been using my, I've been kind of alternating back and forth, just trying to figure out the things that I like more about one or the other. And um, it's just so hard to tell you which one of them is my favorite. The the Frontier is an older model and it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but man, the things that it does really good 
it does really stinking good. I don't think, I say all that to say, I don't think you can go wrong with anything from New Canoe. Um, if you're looking at getting into the kayak hunting game, man, I mean, it's just, it's a no-brainer. You, you need a New Canoe to do that kind of stuff and to do it well and to do it comfortably and to do it safely. Um, that was one of the things that I always struggled with when I was using other kayaks is at any moment I could flip this kayak and I would be SOL. With a new canoe, I really don't have to, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to have that problem because it's so stable. It's got a high weight capacity. It can carry all my gear, all my equipment. Um, when I'm fishing, man, one of my favorite things to do on the water is trying to uh, use creature baits and just punching through pads, punching through lee, or, uh, uh, weeds and stuff like that. I, I really struggle to do that sitting down. In most kayaks, you have to do it sitting down. In the new canoe, you get I mean, you use that boat like a like a john boat i walk all the way up to the front stand up punch through those weeds jig it up and down catch fish set the hook like that it's just so stable i could talk for hours about the new canoe but go and check out newcanoe.com if you're interested in uh getting in my opinion the best kayak on the market last but not least this is uh spartan forge now johnny i actually got to know johnny through our involvement with spartan forge he's on the team with me and uh, that's where I got to know him at. We were part of a lot of uh, group text messages and things like that. Um, and I can tell you, we have had conversations about Spartan Forge that are really cool. Things that are coming out with Spartan Forge that are going to be awesome. We're going to have Bill on the show very soon to talk more about what it actually is. But basically, it's a deer prediction uh, app that tells you when the deer are going to move, where they're going to do that movement at, and what time they're going to do it at. And uh, it uses data points, just thousands of data points from all across the country and uh, and predicts the movement based on artificial intelligence. And, um, man, it's just a lot of other nerdy stuff that I don't know everything about. Uh, that's why we're going to have Bill on to tell more about it. But you can use the code SOUTHERNGROUND at checkout, and that will save you uh, a little bit on your purchase and what you buy it for right now is what you'll buy it for forever no matter how many updates happen no matter how uh big the the uh the application gets you'll pay the exact same amount so i feel like i just talked for way too long on this so we're going to go ahead and get into this episode with johnny stewart talking about aggressive public land tactics in the big woods on the line we have got a guest from up north of all things that you would expect to hear me say. That is probably not one of them, but we have got a guest from the far north, I believe, in PA. We've got Mr. Johnny yeah. Stewart on the line with us. How's it going over there, Johnny? It's going good, Parker. Um, I just cracked me a beer, and uh, I think it's a two-beer podcast, so... Uh... I'm about ready to talk some whitetails, man. Absolutely. I don't know if, if it's a compliment or not for you to say that talking to me is going to be a two-beer event, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but I, I, I'm i right there with you. I have got a uh, a Diet Coke, actually, right here with me. So well, I mean, if I have to get into the fridge and get a third one, yeah. you know, I'm not going to argue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, Johnny, like I said, you're you're from PA. Uh, Pennsylvania, a state that we actually have a pretty decent number of listeners from. So uh, I think part of that is because what it is, we have a, a good listener base in Michigan, a good listener base in Pennsylvania, and then all, all across the South. 
in the Southeast. And uh, I think a lot of those states share a few things in common, but definitely one thing, which is what we were just talking about before I hit record, which is hunting pressure. There's a lot of hunters in these states. And so a lot of the tactics that we talk about, the strategies we talk about hunting southern whitetails definitely can apply up there where you guys are at because they're just high pressure deer. And so they they tend to um, have a lot of the same tendencies. And, uh, and so that's why I wanted to have you on. You're a part of the same, the Spartan Forge team with me. And uh, we've shared some group chats here in the past couple months. And so just sitting here thinking about it, I was like, man, I bet Johnny would be a great guest. So, yeah. Johnny, tell me a little bit about yourself, just in case any listeners are not uh, familiar with who you are and what you do. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your hunting style, uh, where you live, and things like that. Well, uh, I first want to thank you, Parker, for being on the podcast. And since you don't have too many guys up in work, it's kind of cool that uh, you got me on. But I, I know people can learn um, from different areas. Um, it might not even pertain to the area. Just kind of always say there's something you could put in your toolbox. Sure. Um, just listening to someone else talk in their situation and where they've been. And um, I always say that, um, you know, when I was younger, I just had a little toolbox, maybe 20 inches by eight inches, like a little thing, like a handyman would carry. And I didn't have many tools in the hunting industry, uh, the hunting world, the, the whitetail world. But now I feel like I have like a service truck full of tools with a crane and big because I've spent enough time and uh, now you could um, pick a tool for the job because you have a lot now. But yeah, I'm from um, Pennsylvania, kind of southwest PA. That's where I grew up and I still live in the area. I'm 42 years old. I've been hunting probably... um, when I was young, you could use a lot of start hunting about 12. Um, they've changed that now. They have mentor programs where you're old enough to carry a gun as long as you have um, an adult and stuff like that. You're allowed to go. But, um, yeah, so I started hunting 12 and um, uh, small game, uh, squirrel hunting. I was big into squirrel hunting. I love squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting. And then um, I would go deer hunting with my dad and, you know, nobody was into trophy hunting or anything like that. It was just kind of where I grew up. There was just kind of old dairy farms and and um, maybe console mine property. Everybody in town, I grew up in kind of a couple little uh, coal mine towns, and everybody kind of hunted the same area. And um, But they always intrigued me, and I think I got my first doe when, with a rifle when I was probably 14, and I really didn't get my first buck till I was probably – I know I had my driver's license, so 16, 17. Um, Johnny, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you real quick because you mentioned yeah. something that we talked about on the phone yesterday. Um, it it kind of reminded me of that. Tell me, you, you talked about the deer population and, and the fact that nobody really trophy hunted much back then. Um, tell me a, a bit about, or tell the, the listeners a little bit about how that kind of happened because you, you talked about the fact that there were a lot of deer and then there were too many deer, and then there were no deer. It was like they just they, it, they got over the population was just out of control. So yeah, where I grew up is kind of a suburb of Pittsburgh, maybe a little further out, getting into the country. Maybe you would say it to where 
um, people that lived in this area in the 50s, there wasn't many deer. People would go to the northern um, part, north northwest part of Pennsylvania, which is the Allegheny Mountains, and uh, rugged, um, well, not all rugged, but um, uh, big forested areas. And um, so I guess back in the early 1900s in, in that area, you know, they really harvested um, all the timber and um, a lot, they just kind of clear cut. There was no cutting for habitat or anything like that. They just harvested the timber. And so as they scalped the mountains up there, the, um, the deer were probably low numbers. And, and as the, the, the um, trees started growing again, um, it produced food because there was a lot of sunlight and the deer kind of grew as the forest grew up through the, you know, fifties, sixties. I mean, don't quote me on exactly when, you know, all the area was clear cut and harvested, but I know they really um, timbered the heck out of that area and no regards for wildlife. And, and as the forest did grow and come back, so did the deer numbers, but, uh, you figure when the forest is growing, if there's a clear cut, there's a lot of sunlight, a lot of browse, and then um, once that forest all if it's and it's the same and it's all the same age, it all grows at the same time. Then you get a canopy. Then there's no sunlight, so the deer population kind of grew as the forest did, and into the 70s. So there was deer numbers where people would leave kind of southern part of PA, travel north because the deer numbers weren't down in this area and everybody would go to the mountains um, and people were hunting camps up there and there's a lot of maybe similar to maybe Michigan and, and stuff like that. People would travel north to the bigger woods and and uh, so the deer numbers were high you would see and I do remember when I was you know going back to 14, 18 into my 20s the numbers were really um, they, they were overpopulated and they just browsed anything, uh, that they could reach. So there was a pretty heavy browse line, you know, getting into the probably, I mean, probably in the nineties where you would go up there and there was no food on the ground. And it was just weird because of where I grew up, there was, there was a lot of browse, less deer, um, but fields and, and then they started living in neighborhoods and shrubs and all that. There was a diverse type of habitat where people live but so yeah that northern area kind of um got crazy with the deer population then i feel like in the in the, the deer were small uh you know small for pa uh you know spikes sixes fours and if you shot an eight point you know in the 80s and, and stuff like that that was a you'd see a lot of deer but if you shot an eight point that'd be the talk of the town up there but they did um I think eat, eat themselves out of a house and home, you know, just from what I remember in the nineties, the population died off and, and people blame, blame the, the game commission and said they did it. And I just think they, uh, the food was nil. Um, they just had a heavy browse line and deer died off and, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years, they started growing, coming back. The numbers were in check for a forested area. It's not like a, Midwest maybe ag type area where there's uh, agricultural to sustain the life, you know, an abundant amount of deer, uh, you know, a forested area is different. There's not much 
and they understory and you know and then they do um, practice better management when they are they're thinking about the wildlife when they're clear cutting or if they're select cutting or what they're doing so yeah then so i lived kind of in southwest below pittsburgh and that's where i grew up and and so uh over time the northern area um once they died out they started coming back and so i do have a camp up there now and the deer came back and they're really healthy i mean uh big body deer the the numbers are in check and the, the old timers uh as we would say um kind of we're used to just seeing a lot of deer and and they kind of they're not used to this new but now the deer are healthy and we're getting six eight year old deer that are you know there's 150s 140s um and it's just good for the herd to be healthy mm-hmm. so so that's that's how that is um up in that area and so yeah i i uh travel up in it's about two and a half hours from my house i travel i don't hunt so much around where I live, it's kind of where I grew up now is kind of grown up with houses and, and I did get into hunting suburbs, you know, um, probably when I was in my mid twenties and I harvest some deer that way, but I just, um, and I would travel to different States, but I did, I, I do like getting away, getting where you don't hear vehicles or cars yeah. and stuff, you know, that kind of, I've done that because it's where I grew up and it's, you know, you want to take the bigger deer and they tend to, um, hide in, you know, where they're, they feel safe in by houses and people that, um, don't pose a threat to them. You know, they're not really acting like a predator. And I learned that and hunted that way and kind of moved on to hunting, um, the bigger woods. And I'm always looking for that challenge. I like challenging myself. Um, and I'd like to, you know, I say kind of you're only as tough as your opponent, you know, so if he's living in a big woods and there's a big old buck and he knows all the ways and if you can harvest that deer, so you're pretty, you're pretty good. Just, um, like he is, you know, yeah. what you, but, um, so yeah, that's it. But going back to, like I said, I grew up, um, Southwest PA and I, uh, you know, I didn't get my first deer till I was 16, uh, with a gun and it was kind of the prior years to that I did get into bow hunting and, and I felt like, it, you know, maybe three years of bow hunting and I didn't kill a deer. And I told myself, it, it's a mental game. That's another thing about deer hunting. You can kind of be overcome by the misses and the lost chances to where you just get to the point where you say, um, I'm never going to get a deer. And that's where I was, you know, until I got my first deer with a rifle, but with a bow, it was like years you know, I would pull my bow back and I'd be shaking so much. My aluminum arrow would be ticking on the rest and that, that, but that was great, you know? And so actually I try to get back to that nowadays because it does get easier. You get smarter, you get better. So I, I choose a harder opponent to where when you do get that one, I, I like, I like that feeling when you, you might have a big buck that's, um, uh, or a mature deer that's rare and, and um, the rest of the population is yearlings, two-year-olds or whatever, and this guy's just a different breed, and to set your um, sights on him and to get in close to him, and, and it kind of puts me back to when I was 14 and I had that one chance, and uh, you really got to make it all happen. Yeah. Um, it kind of puts you in a, the same situation. So, yeah, and then I swear I, you know, started hunting and then I finally got my first deer with a bow, maybe around 17, 18. And then 
once I got that first one under my belt, it was like, okay, I could, this ain't that bad. And so I started, you know, um, hunting a lot with the bow. And, you know, when I, so in PA, you're allowed just one buck. So whether it's archery or gun or muzzleloader or, or however. So I would start harvesting deer with um, my bow and West Virginia's close by. And as a non-resident there, you're allowed two bucks. So we started, me and my buddies in uh, our late teens and 20s, we started traveling, hunting West Virginia and, you know, different states. Then we dabbled in Ohio and um, and so on and so forth. We headed to the Midwest. And, um, and like we talked about earlier, Park, I took on a job that, well, I grew up doing excavation, but it's kind of something um, I stuck with because to me it was a it's a seasonal job in this area, mm-hmm. and I do work hard in the summer and I get my time off, you know, throughout um, the hunting season, and that really kind of fits me well. So I kind of really indulged in that through probably my mid thirties, late thirties. And I just got the whitetail fever pretty bad to where, um, as we talked about earlier, I, I had that job that I worked in a summer and, you know, maybe the first frost middle October. I just, I told my boss, I said, I got, I gotta go. I, I I'm, I'm done. My brain, I'm here. My brain's so, in the woods. Yeah, I, I made him enough money and I worked my ass off to, to be able to do that. And so, you know, up through my thirties, that's, uh, did a lot of traveling. And then I, I got into just strictly public land hunting because it just, it gave me that challenge I was still looking for. Yeah. So nowadays I'm just kind of strictly, uh, public land, uh, mature whitetail on, because to me, that's your, to me, that's the hardest, um, animal to go after when everybody else is allowed to hunt that same animal mm-hmm. uh, it's not restricted to hey this is my property and you know to each their own though that's just just my choice and how i i want to chase these white tails to me hunting the wide variety of areas on different lands public private i just feel like that's where the challenge lies for me because a lot of these deer, they'll know where that property line lays, that public and private. And yeah. There's one like, man, if I could step over that fence, I could kill them, no problem. But <laughs> I'm like, no, there's no challenge. You know, it just to me, it's a black and white situation where it's like once you put the private in there, it's kind of like uh, it just kind of goes out the window to me. It's like, yeah. But I deer on private. I'm not saying, but that's where I'm at. And, um, I like that challenge, and I tell people there's years now that I don't even shoot a deer. Um, not saying that I don't have a chance every year. It's just like I'm into learning these animals. I'm so fascinated fascinated by these animals that if I harvest one, it's like I'm done. i got to get out of the woods. Yeah. Uh, so, but you keep scouting, but I, I, like, I like hunting right up to the end all the way through January, and I learned so much, run cameras and that. So I'm just kind of a student of the these deer and, and uh, always learning and learning and learning. And I think that's what I, and nowadays that I'm, I've harvested enough, you know, I don't care if I don't take a deer. I don't have nothing to prove, but um, I like to keep learning um, about them. So, Johnny, tell me a little bit about the 
the terrain and the landscape of the the areas that you hunt um, up in that, uh, I guess, close to where your camp is and, and the, the mountains that you were talking about? Yeah, there are some areas that get rugged. You'll have, a, you know, some different elevation changes, 500 feet, 400 feet. There's some areas that uh, near where my camp is that I kind of grew up hunting, and um, there's good quality deer there, and it's a lot of, like that part of Allegheny National Forest, kind of a plateau um, towards a lot of flat land. Um but these deer, there's um, there's no mast in the area that I hunt. Now, you can go a little bit northeast. You'll get into some acorns and, and kind of concentrate the deer. But um, the area where my camp is is uh, predominantly beech, cherry, maple, hemlock. And um, the beech are actually dying off. And, you know, back in the 70s and that, it was a... It was a staple for the deer the beach but um, they like the wild cherries and you know in the in the september they start falling august september but um a lot of random movements for deer um not so many terrain funnels in this flat area but that doesn't mean that there isn't areas in the country that i hunt don't use the terrain and the deer funnel into these areas, but what I've learned over the years, being a student of these deer and learning from them, not so much, I kind of quit uh, reading magazine articles when I was a kid. I used to read every magazine I could get, every book, everything about deer, but it kind of, it didn't pertain to the deer, the heav- heavily pressured deer. And, and even back then, I did some public land, you know, and it was kind of like more Midwest um, food source was kind of, um, everybody knew it was the uh, ag fields and more some oaks. And it just kind of like, uh, I think I went backwards because it wasn't like uh, the magazine articles I read wasn't like, hey, I'm Joe and this is where I live. I live in South. It was, he was just telling me about deer and I was applying how the deer reacted in his area to my area. And there's so many situations that it didn't work for me. So I become a student of the deer itself, the deer that I hunt and wouldn't use anybody else's intel um, because I feel like it didn't pertain to the animals that are on the hard hunted public land or heavily pressured areas. So I can just, I've done, and I I did the wrong thing enough. To me, that's what experience is, is you've done enough wrong that you know what's right to do now. So I've I've sat in the trees in the wrong spots for many moons. And and then because that's maybe what I thought and that's what I read about. But now it's kind of like I I actually learn from that animal and hunting these public lands. It's, it's different, and, and I know we've talked about pressure, and to me, it all stems from <clears throat> the pressure that these animals receive from their prey, the predator. Sometimes it's coyotes or wolves or whatever, but the biggest one mainly on this public land is humans. And for them to get away, they have to live differently 
than the animals that are on this private land, maybe their food sources here, food plot, um, because it's just a total different situation. So the big, the big thing, biggest thing I learned is the pressure that people put on these animals is dictates how they live. And, and I've started, well, not started, I've, I've learned to just learn uh, where those spots are. It might not be the best textbook area, but it's the spot that they have to go to to survive and get away from these humans. So. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about that yesterday in that, um, you know, a lot of times in the places where I've been successful, either killing a big buck or um, having an encounter with a big mature buck has been in areas where maybe I'm not necessarily seeing deer numbers. It's it's where I'm seeing, you know, uh, not nearly as much sign. There's not any of the big, you know, rubs and scrapes. It's not big, heavy trails, but when you encounter a deer in those areas like that, um, it's going to be the right one. And we talked to Nathan Killen last year who hunts mountains in Virginia, and he, he kind of says the same exact thing. Mature bucks don't live. They don't survive in the same places where small, small young deer live or does, big doe groups. They're just not. It's almost like a different animal. And so... I'm really interested to hear from you, Johnny. Um, one thing I didn't know about that, that area is there wasn't like, you didn't have a lot of oak trees and stuff like that. So what is, what is the main type food sources that you're keying in on? Or maybe if you're not keying in on them to hunt, you know that they're there, they're, they're somehow working into your strategy to kill these bucks. Um, what are those food sources in a place like that? Is it just, mostly browse and stuff like that? Yeah, so there is a lot of browse, a lot of green, um, I would call, um, like, through throughout the summer, there's a lot of, like, I've hunted different states, Midwest, and, you know, you go into the hardwoods, and there's nothing but leaves. You know, you might get a couple of saplings growing here and there, but uh, up in the area that I hunt, and it's not typical of every area, but you'll, you'll tend to see green stuff on the forest floor, like I call them the wild strawberries. They're like strawberry. They just crawl and they're green and they got leaves and they're, they're, they're green all year. And, uh, and uh, throughout the year, you'll see the deer's stool is green because they're eating this all winter. And then they'll eat tea berry and there's carpet like pine. They don't eat much of that, but a lot of these deer in this area in the winter are digging up and eating roots and, um, a big food source of these deer, um, even in the areas up up in there that have masters, ferns. Hmm. I mean, I've this this winter I was in a tree in January. It was about a foot of snow on the ground, and there's these holes, and so a deer would dig down and eat these ferns. And then there's, you know, maybe the next night this deer would just find that hole that a deer was digging the night before and shove its head down there. His little button buck, he was, had his head buried in there, just bringing it like bringing up ferns like you wouldn't believe. There's a lot of vitamin C in that. These deer know, that, I mean, they're browsers by nature, and, and this is what they're made to live off of. And there's some yeah. healthy deer in this area, but throughout the summer, a lot of the deer will feed on uh, clear cuts, you know, fresh ones, all the way up to six, eight years old, or still some light coming in and creating. 
uh, browse and, and I usually look for like a variety. Um, they, they like to move through the forest and, and eat different things. They don't want to eat the same thing every day. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, just how they are. But um, so throughout the summer, definitely browse. Um, and, and then they just keep on browsing right up um, in through the fall. I mean, and in some places like uh, in the forest that maybe haven't been logged or sometimes creek bottoms, there's a little bit of water and, you know, there's grass that grows because it's too wet. They'll, they'll, they'll feed on that, but there's food for the, and that's the, these situations here where I hunt, there's food at their fingertips. So it's not like, Hey, I got to go to that cornfield tonight to feed. Mm-hmm. They can get up and feed and lay wherever, just a random lifestyle with, um, points that they got to visit, whether it be scrapes or to, to, um, find out how the doe, doe bedding areas and where the does hang out. So, so there's a lot of random randomness to it, but to me getting in an area that has some hunting pressure helps you key in on, on, on the areas that the people aren't hunting. Yeah. Um, but uh, another thing, Parker, I've learned that some of these deer that um, now I'm talking like bigger forest areas, but they're still accessible with gates and people like we talked about people in PA have a lot of sportsmen, Pennsylvania, and a lot of them are good hunters and, and they're getting back and reading these onyx and maps and doing what it takes to get to the deer. And, um, so it is, there's a lot of accessible areas and people are getting in after them. So I still stick to the animal and letting them tell me, um, where they want to be. And they, they get educated from these hunters, but there's also situations that I've hunted over the years, not just like bigger forested areas, but heavily hunted public lands um, throughout the country that, um, I mean, the areas that the parking lots, you might be able to relate to it are just like beat down. Now, most of the states, pretty much all the states I hunt and you're not allowed to bait mm-hmm. um, on public land. So that's not something I'm, um, I know about, but, I've hunted some really heavily hunted areas that you would like guys would walk right to their tree for days in a row. And there'd be like literally a path, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you could see where they're hunting. And, and I've done some things in them areas to help me find the deer. I would get in that area. Uh, just for instance, this is a good little tip that I would do, um, in a heavily hunted area to see where the deer are. I wouldn't go into maybe the second week of November when the guy's been in there hunting the same stands, hunting the same areas, entering and exiting the same area. And I just walk as fast as I can through the whole entire, as much as I can, maybe like before dark in that. And I was just trying to jump deer and see where the deer are. Because mm-hmm. I could tell you aren't by seeing where the guys are parking. I would just, and a lot of things I would do is drive the whole perimeter. Maybe it's three, 4,000 acres and see where the guys have been parking before I even go in hunting. Or I'll just, like I said, I'll hike through the hike through that public land. Just like take a note of everything. I'm looking up, down, left, right. And, and it's like a sponge. I'm just soaking it all up and seeing where guys are hunting. And then I always would like to go in after a little bit of a rain 
because then they're gonna uh, you'll see some fresh tracks in the mud and like okay there's fresh tracks here okay i jumped the deer here and you can eliminate a lot of land by doing something like that people want to stick in uh, one spot and hunt a certain area a certain tree and and stick with that but man it don't take long for these deer to peg you you yeah. know and because they're already living on public land i've i've one deer for instance a few deer for instance uh that i've hunted on heavily hunted public land mature bucks it was almost like they knew these hunters it was almost like they had a chip on their shoulder because <laughs> it, it was so easy parker to these animals being four to six seven years old and they would just i call them scenes where maybe between where guys hunting and maybe a piece of private land there'd just be a little scene that he he knows nobody hunts this fence row he wouldn't leave any sign and sometimes he wouldn't even participate in hitting the scrapes and all the other stuff that the other deer do and once in a while i'll just find this monster rub just to say hey i'm still here but um there's times that i would see these deer and know that they live just because of my eyes i visually saw them in areas uh, over the years and, and i would get out and scout and be like oh <laughs> and it all was uh similar in the areas these deer used that the people overlooked areas i call them like nooks little nooks and crannies little scenes that they sneak through where they nobody's at no rubs no sign and you wouldn't even know this animal lived here in this area because he didn't even leave the sign and it was he didn't participate in using deer trails and stuff he was other and he would just float through like a um like a satellite and he just kind of that's how they they live their life and and i think throughout the breeding season some of these deer slip up maybe fall on a doe and get shot or maybe get on their private land but um these big mature deer and then they kind of know the areas the typical areas that the people hunt and it might be the going back to like in northern Pennsylvania, it might be the best spot whether you use onyx and or whatever you do and you say man there's a diverse piece of land here with there's cover man there's a mast here this is good but then if a buck's been living here for five years and them are the areas that people were hunting and that's where the pressure is well guess what that that place isn't so hot anymore and and that's why the public land uh to me there's that element the uh you know the unknown variable is the pressure you have to figure you can anybody can go to an area that doesn't isn't pressured and read the rubs and the scrapes and it all just oh this is easy so but you can see it on public land but it might you might as well just you you can just throw that away because some of these deer um they they know these areas to where you know it's good for the the rest of the deer population the deer herd but not for him because that's where he might encounter smell people see people so yeah sometimes that's the thing that that's the biggest thing with hunting public land sometimes i find a heck of a spot every all the stars are lined up scrapes and i'm like and i get like a butterflies in my stomach i'm afraid to hunt it because i'm like this is what the mature deer are staying away from but Mm -hmm. So I do hunt it or I drop cameras to see if I get some daylight activity, if he's coming through um, to, to, to help me. But that's the thing you have to learn 
about these mature animals on public land is what is that unknown? How, how is the pressure um, dictating these animals or is it because this is, that's, that's the toughest thing, you know, is figuring that out. Is everything going to look down on papers? Like here it is. This is a lay down spot. Then you're hunting and all of a sudden you got a guy walking through. Oh, I've seen this stand here. Then it's like, no, no, it's not so much anymore. Then you're like, Maybe you hunted two or three days, and you're like, yeah. And you already learned what he, this buck knew for three years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you got to be one step ahead of all these animals. So you're using yeah. you're using a lot of pressure um, in your. I would I would consider everything we've talked about to be more in season scouting type tactics. You know, seeing what the mm-hmm. pressure is doing, and like you said, pressure of course is going to dictate it's going to be the most important factor i think on hunting any type of public land and uh every what you just described a lot of it sounds like um you know how we how we break down spots out here and mm-hmm. um I, I tell you one thing that you did say that was that i thought was pretty bold it's a, it's a bold move but also a, a good move is just walking around trying to bump deer up walking around those the perimeters of those areas and trying to bump deer and figure out where they're at um mm-hmm. so you established that that a lot of your a lot of your success and a lot of your um scouting really comes in season when there's pressure that's actually happening at the time is there anything that you're doing like say this time of the season or preseason um any type of scouting or anything like that that you're doing uh, to maybe give you a little bit of an upper hand once the season starts. Yeah, and going back to Parker, what you're saying about me hiking through the woods and jumping deer, and this is also instances where I'd be hunting four or five different states a year, yeah. and they drop cameras, and I get to a new spot, and and uh, I want to know. I always say I want to know what's going on in the area. I don't want to just whether it's hunting or anything in life. I don't want to hope. Yeah. I don't want to leave anything to the hope. I hope it's deer. So I want to, I'd rather walk through that area, jump deer, make noise and know what's going on just by my quick jaunt through the woods. Hmm. Uh, you take a big whitetail that never lived there. You let him run through them woods and he's going to come up with a lot of answers to his questions real fast. Yeah. His nose is down. And it, basically that's what I want to do. And you're on public land. So you, I used to, when I was younger, um, when we started hunting out of state, we kind of tiptoe and sneak and man, I don't want to, I'm going to just hunt here. I don't want to go too far. I don't want to spook nothing. That was my attitude. Then I get up in the tree in a mediocre spot and then I hunt two, three days. And then I say, yeah, I get, ain't seeing much. I walk over there a couple hundred yards. Here's where I need to be. Or I jump a deer over there. And like I said, it is public land. So, you know, anybody could be walking through the woods and they're already on, but they're, they're on to them they're surviving with these people hiking through the woods. And if you're making wood, if you're making noise and walking, that's different than acting like a predator and hiding in a tree and yeah. them not knowing where you're at and them smelling you. And, Oh, that really, to me, that's the worst thing. You have to hunt to kill an animal, but to be stationary and act like a predator to hide from them. That to me, that like, that totally freaks them out. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, that's worse than just bumping them and oh, okay. They don't run off hundred yards and they'll hear you walk and they'll just, okay. Then they'll go back to man or they live with you. Mm-hmm. But to actually hunt is really, um, 
is the thing that really uh, scares them, I feel, because you're just a hidden, you know, predator. But, yeah, um, it, it takes them off guard, whereas when you're not even, you're not even, I mean, it, it's it's kind of similar to, uh, you hear the DeQuistos talk about it a lot, to the bump and dump style of hunting. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're having the same effect. It's the, it's the repetition that gets them, that makes them leave an area for good. If it keeps happening over and over and over and over again, that's what makes them leave. Yeah. But if you're just, you know, scouting through, I can't tell you how many times, uh, I've killed a deer that, and I blew deer out of the area on my way in, you know, it's just, it happens. And, um, I can they're staying there for a reason. Whether they get bumped or not, they're safe. They have escape routes. They know to turn to that area. They're going to utilize it unless you're there every day. Like the typical guy that goes to the same tree and hunts that same spot. That's I can't find anything worse. Yeah. But people don't, they, they don't want to put that extra effort to, okay, my stand's up. I'm just going to wait. And there are instances where that will work. You know, if you're in a rut, if the wind's right, you're in a funnel. Not saying that a, a, a stand site that you hunt every day isn't going to work. But like, I, I go back to having a bunch of tools and know when the right time to use the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a, there was an instance that I can tell you about. That was pretty neat. Whenever I was in Kentucky, the very first year I ever went to Kentucky and it was the first day that I was there and I walk in new spot, never been there. It's pretty far away from any walk-in area. Any, I was doing using water access. As soon as I get out of my boat, I jumped two big bucks out of out of bed. One of them goes one way, one of them goes the other way. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to set up right here. And in that moment, it wasn't like, a, I'm going to kill one of these bucks. Um, that was before I'd ever even heard of like the bump and dump techniques or anything like that. But I was just like, well, obviously there's deer here. Uh, I'm just going to set up here. And what ended up happening is uh, right right before dark, one of those big bucks that I jumped came right back, came right back to the area. And he was trying to, they were still, it was the velvet hunt. So they were, it was first week of the season, still bachelor grouped and all that stuff. And he came back looking for his buddy and uh, I ended up missing the deer, but um, that doesn't take away from the, the idea of what you're talking about. You know, I mean, that can, when you do that, especially if you're deep, if you're in a, a, you know, a spot that's not getting pressured a whole lot, that can really be something that works out to your advantage. And for guys going out and doing out of state trips, man, there's not a whole lot, a whole lot better way to do what you're talking about in let the deer tell you where they're at than just walking around trying to find where they're at, you know, physically yeah, you seeing know, that, them. That reminds me of a story maybe 10 years ago. I was hunting, I think Illinois and, and I had this little finger. It was a little draw. It was a finger of, little bit of hardwoods and there was two big fields and it petered out maybe and i uh i don't know why but i was hunting the one tree and there's rare times do i get into a spot and like it uh the every minute i stay in there like goes so fast because i'm so confident that i'm going to kill a deer in this spot yeah but um i went and got in this tree and i sat there till noon and it was november ended up getting 80 degrees right but I was willing to stay there all day. And then um, I used to, like I said, I would travel and hunt four or five different states. And um, I had a border collie. He pretty much lived with me in my Jeep. And that's what we did. 
And, you know, it was really cold and frosty in the morning, so I'm going to have to get out, <clears throat> let him out, take him for a walk. He, he was just like, he was getting older. He loved laying in a Jeep, give him some food, water. So I, uh, I left, and I let him out, missing that. You know, I got back in about one. He got back in the Jeep, and uh, it was starting to cool off already. And he was cool and everything. And, and uh, I got back to the tree, and right under my tree was about 170-inch 10-point, standing under my tree. <laughs> And so the deer ran, and the finger petered out. The finger of timber petered out maybe 100 yards away. So I just got back up in the same tree. I'm like, what am I going to do? Um, and you think most of the time you blow them out of the country. So I don't even think he crossed the ag field into the next maybe draw. I just think he, in, that, in that finger at the end had some, you know, maybe some CRP in that, that he probably just stood there. And I'm talking like probably 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So we got another three hours three to four hours before dark. And so before, I think he stood out there for about three, four hours and did not move. But he wanted to use that draw as an access point, um, point A to point B, wherever he was headed. So right before dark, and he, heard, and he never heard me climb up my tree, but he heard me walk to that spot where I jumped him under the tree and he ran out the finger, maybe a hundred or so yards. And so he ran out and had... I know he just stood out there. So I got up in my tree and uh, real quiet. So um, right before dark, he wanted to go this way. Like who's that? this was his safe route that he traveled. Even though I just bumped him um, a few hours earlier, he still wanted to go this way. So before dark, these doe come under me. I said, oh, this is good. I said, um, and the one had a cough. It was coughing. You know, it would <laughs> cough like that. So these does are feeding around me. I was like, oh, that's good because if that deer didn't leave, he, he knows this doe. She lives here. He heard that cough, and that's going to make him comfortable. There's some deer back. Maybe I left, you know, walked away. Right before dark, he come down. He didn't come down underneath me. He got in the, the ag field, and, and I could damn near shoot to the ag field. It was about 40 yards. He walked down. And he got past me a broadside, 40 yards, and I couldn't get a shot. And you know what he did? He went down past me. He was going from point A to point B. He wanted to go down that draw, but since he wasn't sure if I was still in there and then Bill made him comfortable, he actually jumped in that ag field, walked the edge. And as soon as he passed where I was um, and what I was doing when them does running me, I gave a couple of grunts. As soon as I passed, as soon as he passed where I was, he went 40 yards past me. He cut in the woods, and he knew that grunt was coming exactly. It was a public land from where I don't know if he associated with a human or what, but um, so he went walked past me, cut in the woods, and he was facing dead at me at 40 yards, like looking not up in the tree, but at the spot that grunt came from. So basically, he ran, hung out for three hours, about you know 100. 120 yards for me. And then when I grunted, it's just, these animals are amazing. You know, and he, he, yeah. he walked and I had a full draw Parker and I could have shot him right at, right at his neck, his white patch, but I didn't want to take a chance. I thought, thought for sure he would uh, turn and, and duck, you know, but it's just like, yeah, I jumped him, you know, but he's still, and I, and there's other times that I've done that. I've jumped deer and had a stand, and actually another instance, I had a deer 
it was real windy. I hung a stand, and I and uh, he I think he was watching me. So the next day, I hunted there at daylight, and the doe come by, and he avoided that. Like they're not leaving that area; they're safe there. You might just have to move twenty, forty yards. That's it. But they're gonna live there. They're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the instances people stick to that tree and. You know, I'm like, hey, I ain't, I ain't taking a chance. And I don't take chance. Like, oh, I hope he didn't see me. And another instance, my buddy um, was caught up in a tree. He kept hunting that spot. And the following day, a doe come right underneath him. That buck came. It went out like a half moon out around him and then back on him goes. And uh, they just, that spot there, you know, they're not going to leave that area. They're safe. But you might have to tweak your stand and move your stand. You know, so back to that story of that big buck. He was facing me, and I didn't take a shot, but I I, uh, I kept hunting that area. I moved my stand a little bit, you know, and the following day, I shot a buck. It was a non-typical, had some crazy points hanging down, and so it ran and died. Uh, so we waited till night, got the flashlights, and my buddy, we went out to look for this deer. And I was telling him about the, you know, he knew about the story about the buck the day before, and the doe was coughing. And he thought I was crazy. I said, this doe's coughing. I can't I'm telling you. It was like human coughing walking through the woods. So <laughs> we went out and went to look for my deer, right? So, you know, you follow blood so far, then you run out of blood, then one guy goes this way, one guy goes that way. My buddy went out. You know, you shine your light around. You're looking for your boy. Like, where's he at? And then finally my buddy comes walking back. He said, I was looking. I was following a deer trail. I was kind of, you know, looking for blood, and I hear <clears throat> That doe's twenty yards from coughing at him. I told you it was a doe out here. She's coughing, you know. But uh, we found him. She got the COVID. That was crazy. That was funny. He like he thought I was crazy. I said, "There's a doe," and he was walking through the woods, dark, looking with a flashlight, looking for blood, and hear something cough. You know what I mean? So, so that was Johnny. Tell me. I mean, that's obviously a pretty. I would consider that to be aggressive, you know, aggressive public land style hunting. Um, a lot of people, if they bumped a deer like that, they'd probably go get their set and move it thinking they just blew out the whole area. Would you consider that to be something that you do on a regular basis is be pretty aggressive when you're tackling public land area? Yeah. I mean, um, stick with that area, but I still don't take chances but that doesn't mean don't think of it as don't think of it wrong where I'm going to pack up and I'm going to go to the next state. I mean, but you got to evaluate your situation and say, Hey, this does in heat, or this is where he uh, beds. He might just tweak his movements and still live in that area. Um, or, or, you know, what, what I hate the worst is when, when you're hunting and maybe a tree, or an area and the wind shifts and maybe it's not blowing the right way or you want it to blow. And it's like, man, I think that's the way he's coming. And, and, and you know what, it'll, you stick with that spot and um, it might just keep blowing that way the rest of the evening. And it's like, damn, I think that and you don't know if he was there. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. Cause then you do I stick with this spot or do I move? Most of the time I'll move cause I don't take the chance. Yeah. Chances are, you, you know, in, in the wind blows that way, maybe you spook a doe or that. So most of the time I'll move, you know, 
and uh, but but usually not far because they might just know, like kind of pinpoint you. Mm-hmm. So the one the the story I was telling, I jumped to that other story. So I was hunting the Midwest, it was public land and windy. And for some reason, the spot I wanted to go hang a stand right before dark. It's like November 8th, 9th, and you should be in a tree. But for I don't know what I was up to that um, I was looking for. I remember looking for this deer. I just found his rubs, and I was trying to locate the deer that made this. And for some reason, I, I kind of had a hunch he was on this one finger um, in between a couple CRP fields and uh, fence row. It's kind of growed up and. I went in with my stand to hang it and, and I, he was walking. It was half hour before dark. I was going to hang a set for the next morning and he was walking right toward me. So we like looked at each other and he took off and ran, but he didn't run for the uh, next County. He ran just far enough. So there was a spot. He would jump a fence to go in and bed into some cedars. So I hung my stand right on that fence row and uh, windy as hell. And I remember getting into the tree right before dark just to test it. And I seen a tail flicker about a hundred yards away where that deer, and no, it wasn't where that deer ran to. They always do like a J hook. They run this way. Oh, he ran that way. You're looking that way. He's over to your, you know, if you run straight away from you, look to the right, probably over there. They try, they do that all the time. They'll run bound that way. They'll get out of sight and they'll make a hard right. Mm-hmm. Um, try to slip you up and many a times. If you see a deer running away from you uh, and you bump them, Chances are he's not that way. He's like, he'd be lying that way. He's going to hook to the right. So, so off to my right, I was in my trees. I was just testing it out for the next morning. And I see a tail flicker. I seen a doe run and then another deer behind it. I said, oh, that might've been that buck. I couldn't see. So I got there the next day before daylight. I got on a fence row and he was going to jump into a spot. There was a low spot in the fence. He would jump and he'd go into the cedar thicket and um the wind was perfect kind of blown from him to me if he jumped that fence and i'm you know fence for a run north and south it was kind of like a southwest wind i was on a north you know um so the deer was going to be south of me jumping that fence everything's fine and dandy and i sat there and about nine o'clock um i actually smelled a buck down you know which would be um, the wind was blowing, was in my favor. So, um, upwind, you know, the, mm-hmm. I, I, and, and I, what he did, I finally figured out what he did was he was with that doe. He saw me put that stand up. And so instead of jumping the fence to get in that cedar thicket at 9 AM, he moved down the fence road to the South about 50 yards and jumped the next, um, low spot in the fence so i'm sitting it's like nine o'clock and i sat there 10 11 i was like you know what i gotta get out of here i said that was that buck coming into bed in that cedar thicket i could smell him you know it's november 7th 8th it's like prime he's stinking so i moved down the fence row 40 50 yards and um i got up in a tree and um before dark i had a hell of an eight point i seen him earlier in my hunt he's right around 150 inch eight and I didn't shoot him and he come walking yeah he come walking out of the CRP field and he stood there and out of that cedar thicket I heard him I heard him walking I said oh I bet that's that big deer so he jumped that fence and he went in there and bedded all day and then that buck that big eight point come in and that was his competition so he 
that big 10, he jumped over the fence heading for that eight. He spooked that eight. And, um, I took a shot at him. I hit a limb. I hit him on a leg. It was nothing lethal or nothing, but that, that story tells you that he didn't, he was probably laying behind me and I see her thinking all day, mm-hmm. but he knew that spot. He's seen me get in a tree. So like I said, I moved down, um, down the fence or I, I literally smelled him. I said, that's, that's, you know, I'm just thinking what's, I'm always thinking about what's going on. I said, he's probably, that's probably him going in that seer to think he, that was probably him watching me yesterday. So, Man, you know, like I said, there's things like that, that people don't think about. Um, and they think, man, that smells like a rotten buck and they may not think anything about it. Or, uh, you're in a similar situation and the, the bluebirds start chirping, you know, down the fence row from you. And yeah. it's, it's really just been in the last few years for me that I have, uh, really considered those, those type of things. And it's so much to the point where I'll do similar things to what you're just, what you said, make those aggressive moves just because I heard a bunch of birds chirping at some mm-hmm. point, you know, <laughs> over there. I'm like, well, that's probably where the deer are going to. They're probably skirting yeah. me. And that's, that's what those birds are going nuts over. Is deer walking through? Uh-huh. I mean, there's just there's so many things like that that people overlook and they don't really think about, um, and and it really is taking a quite a risk. I mean, you're you're basically moving your whole setup from a spot where you saw a great big whitetail, and you're moving mm-hmm. it based on a smell, you know. And yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's crazy when you think about it, but obviously yeah. that was that was the right move. And sometimes you just have to do those type of things to uh to see that success you know drive up and and it it may be the wrong move sometimes like like you said earlier you know you've you've done a whole lot of things in the past that kind of let you know what you can get away with and Mm -hmm. they let you 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 know maybe push the limits a little bit to let you know your boundaries but um sometimes you need to do that you know to to learn what those boundaries actually are or to just make a move and put yourself in the game I think that's great. That's a, that's an excellent story when it comes to being aware of your surroundings. And I mean, there's so many cool factors, how that deer skirted you and avoided your pressure. Um, the way that he did, yeah. you know, that's crazy. They were 170 inch deer, the big, some of the bigger deer I ever encountered with. And they would stayed there. I mean, and a lot of times, people you don't see them deer because they have them. I call them scenes, them little spots that do work. Mm-hmm. And they stick. That's why you're not seeing them running anywhere because that they're not there. You know. How far? They, uh, how far would you say? Like like what we talked about earlier about you. Um, you know, a lot of times the 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 bigger deer are not going to be in the same areas where the general deer population is at. Um, how far? would you say on average for you in your experience, is it like a completely different area or are they just kind of skirting those big main areas? I think it's just, they're just that little, that little spot where nobody goes. Yeah. Yeah. They're just skirting. They're figuring out that little, maybe, like I said, where maybe a two property lines meet where nobody goes near that fence. They want to go over there or just in between hunters. And for the instance, that one deer that he was, he was 180 inch, 190 inch deer. And, um, I seen him another instance. I seen him cross the road one morning at daylight. It was pouring down rain. It was the first day I worked all year. And that was the first day, uh, I got to hunt and, uh, 
um, down in this area, and I, it was second week, second to third week in November, there's deer across the road, and I thought it was a mule deer. So <laughs> well, well, basically, well, me and my buddy, I said, I'm not going out in the tree stand in this rain. <laughs> so let's just ride, just ride around, you know, and when it tapers off, we'll go get in a tree, and just maybe we'll see something crossing the road, and, and we did. We went, you know, walk, we're driving through this public land, and this buck come out of this overgrown field, you know, and, and there's was, was like a little corner area that was private, a few acres, but behind there was all public. And then he was crossing going into some private. I thought it was a mule deer. So then, um, I started hanging cameras back in that public and it was like, it was a spot that you wouldn't even think held a mature deer. There was no sign of them. There was no rubs. It was just like some does. And I ran cameras and I hunted there and, and, um, I never got a picture of them, and, and, and so, I mean, I'm talking about a really heavily hunted piece of public ground, so I couldn't, I, I got out of there, and I, and I got back there maybe three weeks later, nothing on camera, and uh, I would just, it was a good mast year, so I, I hiked that, it was about three, 4,000 acres, I mean, I, I hiked all through it. And I found an area that he had rubbed, and it was about a mile and a half. I was on the very edge of the, the public land, and right in the heart of that public land, he left the biggest rub I've ever seen. Hmm. And to me, it was like, you know, and there was guys in and out of that. To me, he was saying, hey, guys, I'm still here. I'm still alive. But I'm not I'm not living here with you guys. But it was just like a signpost. just a, cause, And this deer was super tall, and this rub was up above my chest and I knew it was him but it's it, it just like you learn about these individual animals from hunting them and you hunt this public land so much and, and like I said I start seeing it how these mature deer see where he's like I'm you'll never catch me in the middle of this public land like yeah but I'm still I still I'm still the king you know so he made that rub in there and I you know I put a camera on it I never you know he never come back but there was a good white oak crop and I said, you know what, I'm going to come back. And I left cameras. The season was out. I said, I'm going to come back in January, the uh, muzzleloader hunt. Uh, I'll leave these cameras here. And, and there's white oaks, and the pressure uh, will die off, and, and maybe I'll catch them in here. So it was a rare chance. We had an inch of snow. So I, in January, I traveled down there. I had my bow, and um, I got in there where that big rub was, and I was – same thing. I just hiked and hiked, and I, I, by then I was with the snow. I was following deer tracks because I could tell a mature animal. So I never seen his track. You know, I did huge circles, and and the one buck that I did find, you know, I figured he was maybe 120 class just by his track, and wouldn't you know, he walked right by one of my cameras, and I, you know, I pulled a card and I'm like, ah, because you second guess yourself sometimes. I'm like, okay, I'm. I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause he simply maybe, so he wasn't in those woods. So I, uh, I gave up. Um, I only had a day or so to hunt him there in January. I gave up. So the following summer, I, I put some cameras. He crossed that road and, you know, I seen him in November four back in the, in the public land. I put cameras, nothing. And, and then a, that was the following summer. And then into October, November, I left them cameras soak, you know, where he crossed that road, you know, mile from that big rub in the heart of that public land. Nothing. 
I'm like, and I hunted on a whim that I would see him and um, no pictures of him or nothing. I got down on a tree. I, it was a cedar thicket. I walked around. I found this horn from the year before. He was living. He was living back in there huh. when I was in that wild goose chase in the middle of that public land. But I, that's where all the, uh, and it was under one big white oak and it was a bunch of cedars. He probably lived in them cedars. He had a big drop time, biggest shit I ever found. I don't know, 180 some class inch animal, you know. Jeez. But um, I think he, like I said, he left that rub in the middle of that big public land, just like telling him, like, "Hey guys, I'm still here." Yeah. You know, I'm still king. But and he was he was running like a same and just randomness. Not saying that he wouldn't follow a doe at a certain time, you know. You can catch them, and a lot of people wait for them big mature deer to get dumb. And it seems like to me, them, them ones that have been around on that public land, that might be 24 hours out of their 24, 36, maybe hours out of their entire life. I'm like, man, if you're waiting for that, that's, and that's randomness that when they get like that, you're going to see them anywhere. You know, you got to find yeah. them find them nooks but yeah on this public this heavy public land and i find these deer and, and over the years i find these spots basically see the deer and i get in there and you're like ah oh, this is you know and there was the rubs and the and the scrapes and tra the trails is the biggest thing that i learned to leave behind uh that when i was younger and i read all the magazines trails trails going to point a to point b bedding feeding mm -hmm. and it just uh Took me a while to get away from that, but these deer are just these big mature deer just roam and they're their own person, and you know the, the trails aren't where they're they're at. I'm not saying they don't use them, and I tell I talk to people, and sometimes they say I contradict myself, but to me it's like a balance scale to where you put a little weight on this side and then it drops, but then to get back to equal you got to put weight on the others you got to do the complete opposite mm -hmm. which is a situation that happens a lot you got to do this in one situation and then in this situation you got to do the complete opposite and that's why i just and i do like reading magazine articles or hearing stories like the stories i tell because people could take these stories or i could take them and say this happened to this person this could happen to me it's not a so much a how-to or the black and white, this is what you do in this situation, or, th or this is what you do, this is how you hunt a scraper, this is the type, I don't like that black and white uh, that people, you know, sometimes try to give you the answers on how to and when, but there's there's just so many different situations in that you could just kind of utilize what you hear from different people and put it in, you don't, don't think that's it, that's how it's done, but you know, have that, you know, on the back burner. Yeah, maybe I'll try this because it's happened to so-and-so in this situation. Yeah. And so, like, what I tell people, I just use it as another tool, another, you know, in your toolbox. It's got to be, that, man. It, it's got to, like, because no, like you talked about, they're also into, all these deer are so individual in their personality. You can, you can, there's things that, that will work, you know, there's things that will that will be fairly consistent. Um, but these big mature deer, I mean, it's, it's extremely situational and, um, you know, I, that's why I really like podcasts and doing episodes like this, especially 
where you you shared several different stories of scenarios that of things that happen and i mean who knows somebody could be hunting a buck that has similar tendencies to the, any one of these stories or they have a situation mm-hmm. that happens and they put that in their toolbox and i mean you just never know when the right time is that they're going to need to pull that out you know a lot of times i like using analogies because then you can relate to how i'm seeing it mm-hmm. it and it's been a while, but I've used a lot of different analogies. And the one is like, hey, yeah, you, you know, say you're hunting a human. Oh, I'm just going to go sit by McDonald's there, you know, but not every human eats at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. So it's similar to like deer. Yeah, I'm going to hunt this acorn crop here because that's where they eat. Deer eat acorn. Well, maybe this one don't want to go there. Maybe for whatever reason, you don't, maybe there's other bucks you don't want to associate with or does. But um, yeah, that it's not the, it's, it's always different for like a mature deer. And I've seen in situations where years go by, you see other mature deer move in, but they utilize that area differently. This is how they see it. This is how they're survived to where the deer maybe two years ago lived differently and rubbed this way and kind of left his bedding this way and that way. And it's like, oh, it's still a good spot but this guy's seen it differently and utilizing it differently to survive. And that's where you say, it's like, they're all individuals and this is how they see it. And, and like I said, there's, that's why I like using analogies. You can kind of relate to put yourself, cannot be like, you know, this is what you need to do. This is how you kill a deer. I don't like saying stuff like that. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah, so. absolutely. Well, Johnny, man, uh, we it doesn't even seem like we've been talking for five minutes, but we've been talking for an hour, uh, over yeah. an hour. And, uh, man, I do appreciate you coming on the show, man, and, and talking with us. I, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely, Parker. Um, and we've got, we've got a hunt. I'm actually, at the moment, planning on coming to PA to hunt um, with you guys this year mm-hmm. um, for, a, for a, a Spartan Forge thing. And... Uh, just recently made those plans to be able to get to go and do that. So I'm going to get to see all about this stuff firsthand at some point, all the stuff you've been talking about. See if it's all cracked up to be, you'll probably come up here. Won't see a thing. I hope not. not. No, Uh, but yeah, we're going to have that veterans hunt. Uh, Spartan Forge is going to sponsor that. And, and, um, up in Northern PA, I'm talking to Bill from Spartan Forge. He was actually up, uh, up there with me last, last week and and uh and we're gonna do that veterans hunt up there and, and it's a cool thing that he that he's gonna do and we're gonna try to get some guys on some deer and and have a good time and, and it'd be cool that you can get up there parker i'm pretty excited about it man and uh and again guys go check out uh johnny on instagram johnny what's your instagram handle the johnny stewart the johnny stewart all one word and, uh, it's really, I, I started following you a while back and, uh, man, I love looking at your stuff. I love, I mean, right now you're just sharing a lot of pictures of tractors and ex, ex, excavating stuff. Uh, yeah, it's not but, what I want to share, but <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's the time of year for me. Yeah. So. I hear you, man. I hear you. But, uh, I know once fall gets here, it's going to be all about whitetails and I'm looking forward to it. Um, so what? When you work hard in the summer, it makes you really appreciate your time that you have to hunt. Absolutely. Makes it that much better. Absolutely. Well, man, you have a good evening, dude, and thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Parker.